0: In Mark chapter thirteen. We're uh, continuing the Olivet discourse. Of course, we started off with some background and some introduction. Now, you remember we used this analogy. It's like putting together one of those complicated Lego things. Okay, we start out by looking at the box. Man, this is something that, that I'd like to get involved in. I, I'm going to enjoy this. And then, um, and then we we started laying out all the different bags and the instructions and everything in part two principles for proper interpretation. And there's three questions that we're using as our as our basis. When shall these things be? What is the sign of thy coming? What is the sign of the end of the world? This message is that middle question. What is the sign of thy coming? Last week, we talked about when shall these things be, and that covers the time of the disciples right on through the church age, and now tonight, what is the sign of thy coming? Mark chapter 13, verse number 14. Mark chapter 13, verse number 14. Jesus says, But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. And let, them, let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days, and pray ye. That your flight be not in the winter, for in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. Except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. And then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christs and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I have foretold you all things. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power, and glory. Father, would you help me as I take on this passage tonight? May I rightly divide it? May I uh, handle it in the way that most pleases you? Thank you for the opportunity to do what I do. I've been reminded just recently of how blessed I am to have the opportunity that I do week in and week out. I could squander it. I could lose it so easily. And but for your grace, I would have. So thank you for your protection. Thank you for your guidance. I am wholly and completely dependent upon you, not just to be successful at what I do, but just to do what I do. So thank you for this opportunity. Help me to make the most of it tonight. May Jesus be lifted up in it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What shall be the sign of thy coming? Now, admittedly, this section applies the least to New Testament Christians, okay? Um, There are applications to be made, but this section applies the least. Why? Because it covers events that are generally understood to take place in the time known as the tribulation. The tribulation happens immediately following the rapture. Now, look at the question that we've asked. What is the sign of thy coming? And a lot of people make the honest mistake of thinking that they're asking about his coming as it regards the rapture. Now, let's let's define our terms. Okay, The second coming of Christ... Is divided into two sections. The first is Jesus parting the eastern skies and calling or literally snatching up his church. We meet him in the air, we're changed in a moment, and we go to heaven with him. The second part of the second coming, Jesus comes to earth defeats the forces of the Antichrist and those that are against him, establishes his millennial reign, and rules for a thousand years. The first part is Jesus coming for his church. The second part is Jesus coming with his church, because we'll be coming back with him, the second part. So when it says, what is the sign of thy coming, these these fellows, these disciples, being Jews, had no view of the rapture in this. They're talking about Jesus. When are you coming back to establish your kingdom? Because a Jew looks at Jesus as the Messiah and should. He is. He's our Messiah too, but not in the way he is to the Jews. And when you think about the Messiah, you're thinking about setting up that kingdom and reigning and setting things right. They weren't viewing the rapture. And so the sign of thy coming here is not talking about the rapture. It rather is talking about his glorious appearing at the conclusion of the tribulation. Okay? Now, I want to take a little side bar here to make sure we're all on the same page. I've touched on it many, many times, but repetition is a good thing. Okay? It is my conviction. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that I can't fellowship with people that see this differently. But it is my conviction that the church, those of us who are saved, will not see one second of the tribulation. I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And I want to give you some reasons why I believe the Bible teaches that. Number one, the structure of Revelations 2 and 3... I'm sorry, what a terrible, grievous error. Revelation 2 and 3. There's not an S on the end of that. Revelation 2 and 3... Leading into Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2, suggests a pre tribulational rapture. Now, what in the world am I talking about? Hold your place in Mark and go over to Revelation. Go over to Revelation. We're going to skim through chapters 2 and 3. We've talked about this before. Okay? Revelation 2 and 3 describes three things it's seven churches. John is writing to the seven churches of Revelation, and these seven churches represent three things. Number one, they represent seven literal churches that existed in John's day. There was a church at Ephesus. There was a church at Smyrna. There was a church at Pergamos. There was a church at Thyatira. There was a church at Sardis. There was a church at Philadelphia, and there was a church in a region known as Laodicea. could have been several churches, actually, in a region known as Laodicea. Seven churches that existed in John's day. The second thing that they represent are seven types of churches that have existed all throughout church history. Okay? So the church at Ephesus represents churches, if you, if you read the text, Revelation um, chapter 2, the church at Ephesus represents churches that are doctrinally sound but lacking in love. Do those churches still exist today? Yes. And they've existed all throughout church history. Church at Smyrna was an intensely persecuted church. The area around Smyrna, they just endured more persecution than most. They represent the persecuted church. Are there churches in the world today that are persecuted? Yes. We subscribe to a periodical called Voice of the Martyrs. And it, it outlines the kind of stuff that's going on even today. It is especially prevalent in Muslim countries, in communist countries. And yes, don't you think for a second that communism's dead. It's not. China comes to mind. North Korea comes to mind. Cuba comes to mind. There's still persecution in Russia. They're not technically communist, but that the seeds are still there. All right. Um, and in very secular countries, there's folks that are in prison because of their because of their beliefs. And if Jesus Tarries his coming, it'll happen in America too. It'll happen in America too. So, and those churches have existed all throughout church history, right? All right. So then, here's the third. Pergamus. Pergamos was the church that was wrongly married to government. They had an easier time of it because they were tied in with government officials and they were you know, viewed as you know government-approved churches. Do those exist today? Yeah. The Church of England, the Lutheran Church in Scandinavia. These are state churches. Um, that, that are, that are you know, hand-in-glove with governments and with, with the world, worldly churches. Those have existed all throughout church history. Thyatira. Now, this one's, this one's one we've got to be careful with. Thyatira was a church that, uh, full of good works, but their doctrine was unsound. So much so that they almost don't look like a church. But how many people have to be in a church to make it a church? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So there are churches out there that to look at them, they'd say, my soul, they're doctrinally just way off base. Well, they do good works, but they're way off base. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind, but this is most clearly identified with the Catholic Church. Some of the finest hospitals you see are Catholic hospitals. There there are folks under the Catholic Church that have gone out and done amazing things for the poor and the sick and, and things like that. And yet their doctrine's off. But are there people within these churches that are saved and loved God? Yes, they, they can't be a church without it. There has to be. All right. Then you got Sardis. Sardis represents those churches that are coming out of these kind of cultures. Right now, the United Methodist Church is having a bit of a problem with that. The United Methodist Church is a denomination. I'm not trying to be unkind. I don't hate Methodists. but the, I used to be one. But the United Methodist Church, as a denomination, has made some terrible decisions. And there's a whole lot of Methodist folks that are saved that are saying, hold on a second, we can't have anything to do with this. And they're trying to pull out of the United Methodist Church. Now, here's the problem with some of that. Some of these folks are right on the money. Some of these folks, they're still holding on to some of the things that they shouldn't as they do so, and that was the Sardis church. Yeah, they were coming out of that mindset, but they still held on to some things that they they shouldn't have. Okay, Do those churches still exist today and have throughout all, all of church history? Yes. Philadelphia, my favorite. This is churches that were characterized by revival and being missions-minded and on fire. Do those churches exist today? Thank God, yes, they do. And they have existed throughout all of church history. And then Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the church that, you know, the church that, uh, they're not the worst church you've ever been to, but boy, they're not the best church either. They're lukewarm. Everybody's comfortable. Everybody feels good about things. God has some interesting things to say about that church. Now, there's saved people in it because it couldn't be a church without it. I've heard people say, no, no, Laodicea is apostate. No, it's not. There's saved people in it, okay? Now, here's the third thing that it represents. And by the way, there have been lukewarm churches all along and are today. All right, here's the third one. They represent seven time divisions within church history now i've had some great conversations with people that don't see it this way and i have won every argument No, not necessarily but anyway ephesus represents the apostolic church that existed from pentecost till about 100 a.d when all the apostles died off that ended the ephesus section of church history Smyrna represents the persecuted church from about 100 to 300 A.D., which not for nothing, in that time period, in those 200 years, there were 10 intense persecutions against the churches by the Roman Empire in that time span. Then you get to about 313 A.D., you have what's called the Edict of Toleration or the Edict of Milan, which Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, issued making Christianity legal, and that ended this part of church history. Okay. Then you have Pergamos. Pergamos represents the worldly imperial church. One of the worst things to happen to the church was the edict of toleration. You say, what? Yeah, because let me tell you what Constantine did. Not only did he make, did he make uh, uh, Christianity legal, he made it the official religion of Rome. And he said, I tell you what, y'all been in hiding long enough. Come on out of the catacombs. Come on out of the caves. I'm going to give you all the pagan temples. I'm going to give you all the pagan temples. And you can worship freely and openly in these pagan temples. I'm even going to attend one of your churches. And and, and preachers, man, y'all are are the cream of the crop. You need to be set apart from everybody else. So why don't you do this? Why don't you take the vestments that the old pagan priests used to wear, and why don't you wear those vestments? That way you'll you'll be set apart as the men of God that you are which creates what's called a clergy-laity distinction. It's called Nicolaitism, and it's not scriptural. Okay. Something that's interesting, just on the side, and I'm not trying to be unkind, but it's interesting historically. A lot of these vestments included a special hat that you wore that was shaped like a fish head because of the fish god. A fish head. Keep that in mind. Because the Pergamos section of church history moves into the Thyatira section of church history from eighty five hundred to eighty fifteen hundred, We know that as the Dark Ages. What church dominated the Dark Ages? The Catholic Church, which a lot of those guys wear what? Miters. That's where it came from. You hate Catholics? I do not. And I want to make this clear. dispersed within the Catholic Church, there are people that have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and that love God. And they just don't know any better. But Roman Catholic doctrine worships Mary and makes a work salvation. And it's wrong. And it was dominated through the Middle Ages. Then you have Sardis. That's 1500 to 1700. That's the Reformation Church. That's these reformers coming out of the Catholic Church, but did they hold on to some stuff they shouldn't have? They did. Martin Luther, man, I appreciate Martin Luther. I really do. But he needed to quit baptizing babies. Hmm? Well, we like that part. No, you should have let that go. Episcopalians came out. Great! But they needed to leave the formality of the Catholic Church behind. But then you move into Philadelphia, that's 1700 to 1900. That's when you see all these great preachers and missionaries, Spurgeon, Moody, the great missionaries like Amy Carmichael and William Carey, and the list goes on and on. And it was revival. This is when you see liquor, um, not liquor stores, uh, bars and saloons shutting down. This is when you see whole families coming to Christ and whole towns getting revival. This is when you see guys like John Wesley and George Whitefield. Man, what a time! And then around about 1900, it started to cool off. And we entered into Laodicea. So when does Laodicea end? Don't know yet. Whenever the rapture happens. Okay, so right now, Laodicea is 1900 to 2023. Wouldn't it be great if it ended in 2023? I'm no date giver, though. Okay, I don't leave here. Preacher said, Jesus, come back this year. be great, but I don't know. Okay, so what in the world are we doing with all that information? Revelation 2 and 3 gives us a map of the church age. Revelation two and three represents the beginning Pentecost to the end of the church age. Now we're in Revelation. All right, go to chapter four. Revelation, chapter four, verses one and two. After this. After what? The church age. Revelation two and three. After this. I, John, looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. What do you do when you open a door? You mean to go through it, don't you? Usually. A door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately, you know what that word immediately means? Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set, where? In heaven. So after this, the church age, I heard a trumpet, I heard a voice come up hither, and immediately I'm where? What's that sound like to you? The Rapture. When did the Rapture happen in this chronology? Revelation two, three, and four. It happened after the Church Age. You see that those two verses, Revelation four one and two. Can I give you another couple that are really familiar and really similar? First, Thessalonians four sixteen and seventeen. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and what a voice of the archangel, and with the what? Trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall what? Rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be what? Caught up together with him in the clouds to meet, with the, air, meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. A lot of similarity between what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and what John says in Revelation 4, isn't it? That's the first reason I believe that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. Here's another one. This one's quicker. The word church is never used from Revelation 4.1 until Revelation 22.16. The whole time that Revelation is covering the events of the tribulation, the church isn't mentioned one time. Why? Because, forgive me, Ms. Collins, we ain't here. The tribulation takes place here. The closest it comes is it mentions the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are there. But we're not here, okay? By the way, there's evangelism going on during the tribulation, and I thought that was the job of the church, but the church is not mentioned doing the work of the evangelism. Who's who's doing it? The 144 evangelists and those two prophets and the angel that's proclaiming it from the air. They're doing it, not us. We're not here to do it. Seems to me if the church were here, we'd be expected to be evangelizing, wouldn't it? But we're not because we're not here here here's the third one we talked about this i think last week the removal of the holy spirit indicates our removal second thessalonians chapter 2 verse number 7 for the mystery of iniquity hath already work only look at this phrase he who now letteth letteth is an old english word for hindereth or preventeth He who restrains evil. Who restrains evil in this world? The Holy Ghost of God. Without him, it gets a lot worse real quick, doesn't it? Okay, so what does it say? It says, only he who now letteth will let. Until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed. Talking about the Antichrist. whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So what's he saying? The Antichrist cannot be revealed until the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. But the moment the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, the Antichrist will be revealed. When is the Antichrist revealed? At the very beginning of the tribulation. So wait a minute. The Holy Spirit leaves before the tribulation. But Jesus made me a promise, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world, amen. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, for he had said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And the way he keeps that promise is by indwelling us with his Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit leaves at the beginning of the tribulation and he's promised never to leave me, the only conclusion I can make is that I'm going with him. (laughs) Now, that leads us to a question. And there's several more reasons I could give. If we're not going to be here for any of the tribulation, is it profitable, is it a profitable use of time for us to study the tribulation if we're not going to be here? The answer is yes. Okay, so what why bother studying the tribulation? Number one, it evangelizes the sinner. If I understand what happens during the tribulation, that gives me a whole lot of ammunition to take to somebody I'm trying to win to Christ to try and convince them they don't want to be here for this. You know? Well, fine. If the rapture happens and all of y'all disappear, I'll guess i know you're right, and then I'll get saved. No, friend. That's not how it works. And I won't know to tell them that if I don't study the tribulation. You don't want to be here for this. You do not want to be here for this. Not only that, it it doesn't just evangelize the sinner, it educates the saint. It's always a good thing for Christians to know what the Bible says about anything. That's how people get into false doctrine when they don't know what the Bible teaches about anything. But you know what else it does? It energizes the soul winner. When I think of what... My family might be here to deal with, or my friends or my co-workers or my neighbors or whatever might be here to deal with in the tribulation. It motivates me to tell them how to avoid it. Don't be like Hezekiah. You remember Hezekiah when he made the mistake of showing the Babylonians all the treasures of Jerusalem? God had extended his life, and uh, the Babylonian... Uh, entourage comes and says, we heard you were sick. We just wanted to come wish you the best. And he says, let me show you around. And that spurred them into coming and taking over. And the prophet came to Hezekiah and said, that was foolish. And now they're going to come in and they're going to take over everything. And you know what he said? It's good that peace be in my day. I'm not worried about that just so I don't have to deal with it. What a terrible posture that would be for a Christian. What do I care about the tribulation? I won't be here for it. But a lot of the people we love might be. This ought to energize the soul winner. Okay? So, let's get into this. Let's do an exposition. This is actually going to be the shortest part of the message. Lord, forgive me. The exposition of verses 14 through 26, it doesn't have to be long because we can cover it really quickly. Again, because we're not going to be here for it, all we need to see is what it says and what it means, and then tell other people to stay away from it, okay? So let's begin. Verse 14, we see the abomination of desolation. Mark chapter 13, verse 14. But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not be, let him that readeth understandeth. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, remember the question, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Jesus, what are the signs that you're coming back to establish your kingdom? Jesus is now going to outline the tribulation. Now, the tribulation is divided into two sections. Three and a half years apiece. It's seven years total. The first half is a time of tribulation, and it is, it is rough. But at the middle point, it gets exponentially worse. At the middle point. And it's roughly covered by what's called the abomination of desolation. You can read more about that in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse number 31. Revelation 11 closes out the first half of the tribulation and begins the second half, which is also called the Great Tribulation. And what happens is Antichrist is going to break the treaty, break the covenant that he made with the Jews. When he comes into power, he's going to make a treaty with the Jews. He's going to oversee the rebuilding of their temple. They're going to think he's the greatest thing in the world. And then at the middle point, he is going to break that treaty. He's going to break that covenant, and eventually he's going to go into that temple, and he's going to present himself as God. That's what the abomination of desolation is. He presents himself in God's temple as God. Now, Daniel talked about this, and you have have an incident that happened in 168 B.C. by a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. What a name. He went into the Jewish temple, and he offered pig's blood on the altar. Can you think of anything that would be more offensive to a Jew than to go into their temple to begin with as a Gentile and offer pig's blood on their altar? And they called that the abomination of desolation. But what Daniel's saying and what it's saying in Revelation is that ain't nothing. Because Antichrist is going to go in and offer himself. God. And when he does that, he will begin a persecution of God's chosen people like the world has never known. I don't say this glibly. I don't say this as anything but the gospel truth. It will make the Holocaust look like a picnic. Hitler, as vile and horrible as he was, will have nothing on Antichrist. He hates the Jews. It's interesting. If I understand what the Bible says about him, he is at least in part Jewish himself. It talks about him not regarding the God of his fathers. That's a Jewish idiom. But it appears as though he comes from Europe. I can't say that, uh, Brother Earl, I'll let you handle that, okay? But but it looks like he's a European Jew. I'm just right now envisioning Brother Earl at home. Anyway. <laughs> but he hates the Jews. Revelation 12, verses 6 through 4. Um, outline six through fourteen, not six through four, six through fourteen. Outline some of the things that he wants to do. But but let's look at this. Let's look at verses fourteen through twenty, because this is the flight of the Jews. Verses fourteen through twenty. But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not be, let him that readeth understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. You need to run. You have no time. You don't have time to pack. You don't have time to get anything together, get out. Get out. And let him that's on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house and let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment but woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days and pray ye that your flight be not in the winter for in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created unto this time neither shall be And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, and the elect here is talking specifically about the Jews, I believe. He's not talking about Christians because where are we? Gone. He's talking about his chosen people. But for the elect's sake, whom ye have hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. What's he saying? If God didn't intervene and shorten this thing and intervene on their behalf, the Antichrist would kill every one of them. Every one of them. The Jews flee. It's going to be an arduous journey. It's going to be a terrible journey. But ultimately and supernaturally, they're going to be protected by God. It's an amazing thing, and I wish we had time to get into it. But the Antichrist is not going to be able to get to them. When they get to the area that God designates for them, which a lot of people believe is Petra, when they get to that area, they are supernaturally protected by God. Antichrist won't be able to get to them. And let me just tell you, it's going to drive him crazy, and it's going to drive Satan crazy. In this time period, in verses 21 through 23, you also see false messiahs, and in particular, Antichrist. Antichrist is presenting himself as God, and he's completely false. Verse 21, And then if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not, for false Christ and false prophets shall rise, and shall show signs and wonders to, to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, behold, I foretold you all things. So false prophets continue to abound, and most of all, Antichrist. So their their question to Jesus is, what's the sign of thy coming? You want to know when I'm coming back? There's going to be the abomination of desolation. There's going to be the persecution and the flight of the Jews. There's going to be a false Messiah. And then there's going to be a worsening tribulation. As bad as it's been, it's going to get exponentially worse. Look at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the first half, the sun shall be darkened, And the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. You read Revelation 16 and keep on reading and you see how much worse it gets. But then what happens? When it's the absolute worst than it can get without destroying everything, You have verse 26, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. There's your answer, disciples, then. At this point, Antichrist and his forces will be gathered in a place called Armageddon, the Valley of Jezreel. And Jesus is going to appear. By the way, we'll be appearing with him. He won't need us. It'll be nice to be there. He'll bring us along. And you know what he's going to do to slaughter all of those that have risen up against him? He won't even lift his hand. Let's read Revelation 19. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read it to you. Revelation 19. Oops, there. Verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. You ever wondered where those crowns come from? I got to check. I think they're a different word than the crowns we cast at his feet. I need to check. But wherever they come from, he's worthy of them, isn't he? (laughs) And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 14, and the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who's that? That's us. You know what that white linen speaks to? Finely finally I'm 100% saved my spirit's saved my soul's saved but right now this old flesh isn't saved but when I come riding down in that white vesture you know what that means I'm wholly saved fully pure fully righteous just like Jesus Uh-huh. <laughs> Verse 15, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He speaks one word, and they all fall. The Bible talks about the blood in the valley of Jezreel flowing to the horse's bridle. That's quite a slaughter. You ever wonder what the one word is? I got no idea. It would be speculation at best. I don't know what the one word is. But for some reason, when I envision it, and I'm not preaching this as doctrine, this is just my rambling, sanctified imagination. You know what I hear him saying? Enough. You ever look at what's going on in this world and just wish God would say, enough. I don't know what he'll say. But whatever he says, it's the right thing. It's the right thing. Then he sets foot on the Mount of Olives, splits it in half, marches and sets up his throne and rules and reigns for a thousand years. (laughs) And we're going to be ruling with him. You ever wonder what he's going to give you to rule? I brought that up in Bible class a couple of years ago. They got really creative. Some of them want nothing more than to rule Blacksburg. Good, somebody needs to. Virginia Tech fans, you know what it is. You know? I don't know where I don't know that I'm worthy of ruling anything. I think I'm going to find out that I he's probably going to give me an acre. You're in charge of this acre. Okay, Lord. I don't know. But isn't it a wonderful thing to think that one day he's going to set it all right? So next week, the third question. What shall be the sign of the end of the world?